Well, that song brings back some memories. One time in camp meeting in Lincoln, Nebraska, there was a trio made up of father, the mother, and, and daughter. And all three in the same year discovered that they all three had terminal cancer. And this was their song that gave them hope. Never give up. Jesus is coming. So, uh, quite a song. Quite a song. Aaron was wondering why so many people sit on this side. I don't know if it uh, means anything or not, but uh, when we put in the new carpet and tore the old carpet out, there's more cracks in the concrete on this side. You tell me the significance of that. A while back, some of us went uh, with a bus group with the Ukaipa Church, and we went down to San Diego to see some of the attractions. Bert, you and Eloise went with us. You remember we went to see the Star of India and all the other attractions that are down there. And we went on a Sunday. It was a beautiful Sunday good time seeing all these things. That Sunday afternoon as we're walking down the boulevard near Broadway, all along the sidewalk were individuals, some of them not dressed very nice, some of them didn't look very nice, some of them crippled, blind, mentally challenged. They're all lined up for one purpose. I want money. Please help me. You're trying to walk through to go from one site to the next and, and they, they, they step out in front of you. want you to, to give them something. I need help. Help me pay my bills. They may hold up signs hold out their hands. Some of them had little boxes to collect money. Do you know why they were there at that particular place? Because the tourists are all there. And they know tourists have money. And so they stand in front of you and they try to look you square in the eye. And you don't want to look at them square in the eye. You want to hurry up and to get through and to get to wherever you're going. You don't have enough money to give to all those individuals. And you know if you give to one, there's three or four others that are going to want to jump out in front and try to get something from you as well, too. You heard things like some people saying, why don't you get a job? You know, or uh, why don't you leave us alone? There was one individual that stepped out in front of me that wanted money and, and uh, I didn't have anything to give him. It was kind of interesting. He said to me, well, God bless you anyway. Hmm. Why doesn't the San Diego police do something about those individuals? Why don't they run them off? They're, they're hindering us as we're trying to see the sights. It, it looks disgusting. It looks bad for this, the city of San Diego to have those individuals lined up along the the sidewalks. It gives a bad impression. Why don't they just get rid of them? 
Yeah, they do that in some communities. They'll actually load them up and move them to a different community. They bother us. They interfere with our fun and our sightseeing. You actually do see they wouldn't be doing it, but there are people that will actually drop money in their, their little boxes. So they're being rewarded for it. Those individuals that drop money in, they must be the, the weak ones. They don't have the backbone to be able to say no. Have you been there? Have you seen? Or in any other place, any other community where they're lined up and begging for money? I remember the first time my younger brother came out to California. He always wanted to go down to Tijuana. So I took him down there. I forgot to warn him. He had a pocket full of change. And as we were there, the little children were coming up and they saw that bulging pocket of change and they were climbing all over the top of him trying to get to that money. Disgusting, isn't it? Remember in Tijuana when they used to have the cardboard houses that all these people were living in? Until one year they burnt down. They had such a roaring fire, it was just unbelievable they couldn't put it out. My wife and I went on a trip one time with a bunch of other pastors. We went to New England, and one of the places that we stopped at, we stopped in Boston. Beautiful city, a lot of things to see in Boston. And guess what? Who we saw right there in Boston, downtown, amidst all the sights, all the beggars, wanting money, trying to get your attention, trying to see if they can get something out of you. There was one of the guys, one of the pastors, who got off the bus. There was an old man that was begging, and this pastor, you might know him, Steve Olberg. Steve went over to that man. And Steve started talking to them, asking him questions. Where he lived, asking him things about his life. It was almost like they were friends. And Steve didn't, I don't remember him giving any money to this man, but of all things, Steve and this man bowed their heads right there in downtown Boston and they prayed. And then after their prayer, Steve threw his arm around that disgusting looking old dirty man and gave him a big old hug. Hmm, what would you do in a case like that when you see the beggars that are lined up? What would you be thinking? How would that affect you? Why is it that when I see the beggar, I'm repulsed and I want to run? And yet when Steve Wahlberg looks at a beggar, he seems to be attracted to him and wants to make friends. Is there something terribly wrong with Steve Wolberg? 
is there something terribly wrong with me? Don't answer that. <laughs> Be quiet, Ted. What is it that makes me want to act as if some people are repulsive and you don't want to associate with them or maybe they don't even exist and you, and you want to ignore them? Why is it that I want to walk away and not help a person who's in need? That's part of the sinful nature. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have this nature within us. So why is it that we can't change? Jesus addresses this question in a form of a parable. A parable is, is a story that has a meaning to it. Sometimes he has to explain the parables, but this one he didn't really have to explain. But it really drives home. Take a look in Matthew chapter 25. Starting with verse 31. We're going to read verses 31 to 33 first. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. Familiar parable. You're going to hear it. You're going to say, oh, I already know this. You don't need to preach about it. Well, let's take a look at it anyway. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes, who's the Son of Man? That's Christ. When He comes in His glory, when is He going to come in His glory? Second coming. And all the holy angels are with Him. Boy, what a sight that's going to be. I can't wait till that day. Can you? And then He will sit on the throne of His glory and all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand but the goats on the left. What's the significance of being on the right hand and on the left? The right hand is acceptance by Jesus. On the left comes the rejection. I believe that Many of the parables that Jesus told were based on things that he saw in everyday life that was around him. And in the streets of Jerusalem, there were the beggars. And Jesus is starting off his parable by describing his second coming and the judgment. They're all rolled into one story, into one parable. And Jesus is telling us in a very few distinct, blunt words that by the time he comes to this world... He will have decided the entire world or He will have divided the entire world into how many groups of people? Two. Only two. The sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And we're either going to be the sheep or we're going to be an old goat. You're either saved or you're lost. Is that right? Is that what it's saying? You've either been transformed by His Spirit or you haven't. No in-between. 
One or the other. Now the question I want to ask you, based on these first three verses only, don't jump to the rest of the parable yet, but just based on just these three verses, how does Jesus decide who is the sheep and who is the goat? Can we make that conclusion yet? No. And yet a lot of people jump to, to uh, their own conclusions and they make up their own ideas. But what we've got to ask ourselves, what is the criteria? What does Jesus use in order to be able to say that you're saved or you're lost? Keeping in mind that really this is looking, we're not looking so much at the relationship with Jesus Christ, but what is the evidence of the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ? What is it that you see outwardly that you know inwardly there's been a change? How does Jesus decide who's really transformed by His Spirit and who isn't? What is He looking for in a person's life? Now sometimes we like to fill in the blanks of saying with our own theology, well, He's looking for those who go to church each week. Can I go to church each week and still not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Sure. We say that he's looking for those who pray and who reads the Bibles. Can I pray and read the Bible and yet still not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Yes. Some people say, well, it's the keeping of the doctrines. Can I keep the doctrines and still not have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, you better believe it. But you know what? Jesus doesn't mention any of those things in this parable. He doesn't say anything about keeping the doctrines about our prayer life or attending church. And that's what we've got to look at. Let's continue on with the parable because I want you to see if you can tell the one big difference between the sheep and the goats, between those who are saved and those who are lost. Let's start with verse 24. Matthew 25, verse 24, or verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, who are the ones on the right hand? The sheep. And what are they? They're saved. Come, you blessed of my Father. Notice that they were blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom that's prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. Now here's the criteria. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did, you see, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and gave you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to visit you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on his left hand, who's on the left hand? The old goats. 
Depart from me, you cursed. No blessing here. Into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not, did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What is it that separates the sheep from the goats? It's their action. It's their action. What is it that Jesus looks for to tell what is really in the heart of the individuals? Is it the doctrines? Is it the church attendance? Is it how often we pray? All these things are important. Yes, they are. But Jesus is really searching to see how you treat others who are hurting. Now, I want you to notice that none of these said that they gave him any money. But he gave to them what they needed the most. He treated them with respect. He handled them as individuals that Christ himself would have loved. We didn't handle them with selfishness. We didn't become repulsed, and they were repulsed. You remember what Jesus did to the leper? Touched him, didn't he? Didn't give him money, he touched him. Then the healing came. Steve Wahlberg took this old man that was repulsive. He looked terrible. He smelled bad. And he prayed with him and he hugged him. Don't you think that's what that man needed? The sheep are described as those who are constantly reaching out to others who are hurting in their lives. Jesus sees them as healing missionaries. People of great compassion. Not just once in a while, because there are some religions in this world today that at certain times of the year you have to be nice to those who are really poor and out, but only at that time of year. The rest of the time you can do whatever you want. Jesus wants you to be that way every day. And it's something you can't fake. You either have it or you don't. You're either reaching out constantly to others or you don't. We might be able to go a few days by interacting with, with strangers, with, with these people on a daily basis, these who we don't want to be around. But can we do it on a regular basis? Can it be a part of our lives? Can we do it even to the family members that hurt us the most? Can we still treat them like human beings? Ooh. 
What about the neighbor that just constantly is criticizing and putting things down, maybe putting you down because of your religion? Can you be nice to him? Can you love him? That doesn't come naturally. You just can't fake that type of a thing. Do we get to a point where we shy away from others who might have problems because we don't want to get involved? I don't want to get in the middle of all that mess. That's their problem. Is that what Jesus wants us to do? Do we often say we just don't have time to help others? Or we just really don't want to help others? Jesus mentions that the sheep reaches out to all kinds of people on a regular basis at meal time, visitation time, just talking with strangers who are new in the area. Could I give you a little small example? I'm going to smile, yeah. We're going to have a fellowship meal in a little bit. You hungry? Someone told me they didn't have breakfast this morning, so if I hear rumblings, that's from their stomach. We go over to the building. You know what the natural tendency for a human being is to do when they go to a place that they're familiar to go to? You do it here in the church. Take a look at the seat that you're sitting in. Nine chances out of ten, for those of you that are regular members, this is the same seat you sit in every Sabbath. Am I right? Yeah, don't tell me anything different. I know. All I got to do is look over here and say, oh man, so-and-so isn't sitting in their regular seat. I see it. So what do you think you do when you go over for the fellowship meal? You sit in the same seat. Who is it that sits next to you? Same people. And you sit and talk to them. What about the visitor? First of all, I don't even know where to go. So visitors, when you want to come and eat, it's just right across the parking lot in the little building over there. We call it the Friendship Hall. I want you to come and eat with us. But once they get over there, they don't know where to sit. So they kind of stand around a little bit until there's finally an empty chair. And sometimes when they sit down, there's no one around them because they don't know anyone to sit with. And sometimes they can go through a whole meal without anyone even saying a word to them. Ooh, ouch. Would that be what Jesus would do? Let a person be isolated? He says, you're my sheep because you went to visit them. The sheep went to them 
they didn't come to you. You've got to get up out of your comfort zone, out of your... By the way, we've got soft cushion chairs over there. We don't have any more folding chairs. So you've got to get off your soft cushion. Oh, you don't have territory now since they're all new chairs. We changed the tables around. You don't have the same tables. You're not going to sit in the same way. You're going to see it different. So you can't come up with the excuse, Hey, what are you doing sitting in my chair? But you've got to get out of your comfort zone and sit next to the visitor. Just to visit with them. It's time to eat. Who do we usually ask to go first? The visitors. Now sometimes the visitors are a little shy. So they'll sit there. And the next moment I see, boom, the whole line is filled up with church members going through like they hadn't eaten all week. Stacking their plates up like I wouldn't believe. Think we need to start an obesity class instead of a Sabbath school class. And then when the visitor who's shy finally gets there, he's scraping up. What there's not much left of. And Jesus said about individuals who are hungry, he says, you gave them something to eat then why are we going through the line first? We don't want to talk to them. We don't want them to eat. We crowd in the line. We don't ask them to get up and to come into line. What are we saying to that visitor? I'm more important than you are. Is that what Jesus wants? You know when you do that, you know what you are? An old goat. Jesus doesn't want a church full of old goats. He wants a church full of sheep. But it isn't just a fellowship meal. It's it's in everything. You know, we have individuals that come and say, you know the reason why I come back to church? You want to know why? Is because so-and-so got up from their seat and came over to my side I guess it would have to go from this side over to this side. And sat next to me and said, I'm sure glad to see you're here. They visited with me. They made me feel like I was at home. That you really wanted me to be here. And that should go on automatically. We shouldn't have to think about it. It should just happen. There's a story about Desmond Tutu. You know who he is? Anglican priest. When he was a boy in South Africa, someone asked him not too long ago, why did you become an Anglican priest instead of a a religious leader of some other denomination? And he said, let me tell you a story. He says, you realize that in, in Africa, especially in South Africa, a, a black person is not supposed to mingle with the whites. In fact, he says, there was a custom when I was a boy that if you're walking on a sidewalk 
and you come to a white person that's coming in the opposite direction, you're supposed to step off of the sidewalk and you're supposed to bow in recognition of the white person until they pass by. And then you could go on. But he said, one day, he said, my mother and I were walking down the street and there was a man dressed in black and he had his hat on and he was coming, it was a white man, he was coming in the opposite direction and he came up and before we had a chance to step off the sidewalk, this white man steps off the sidewalk, takes his hat off and bows to my mother. And we walked by and Desmond Tutu said, Mom, why did that man do that? That's not the custom. And you know what she said? She says, that man is an Anglican priest. And Desmond Tutu said, I grew up knowing and realizing that I want to become different than the rest of the world. That's why I became an Anglican priest. Do you see the effect? That a little bit of kindness, when it comes naturally, and that was his custom of doing that, to do something that is different than what the rest of the world will do, what effect it has on individuals. Wow. We have to learn and we have to change. Jesus said we should feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty. So who should go through the line first but our visitors? Who should have plenty of food and plenty of things to drink? Should be our visitors. But what if I don't get something to eat? Go home and eat. Do you know there are times, and, you, and you'll see me as a pastor, I'll be one of the last ones that come through line. And I have seen times when I haven't gotten much to eat. But I'm not afraid to go home and to make me a sandwich. Because I would rather have the visitor eat my portion of the meal than for me to jump in and to eat their portion and they go away saying, that was the rudest church I've ever been to. Now I'm not here talking about the rudeness. What I'm talking about is that there needs to be a change within all of our people in everything that we do, whether we're walking down the street, whether we're seeing a stranger, whether we're seeing family who we are repulsed by, or whomever it might be, there has to be a change. But here's one area that we could make a change in, and it could build from there if we want it to. What about the sick church member who needs a visit? How about the hurting worker who may need some comfort? How about our school teachers that get so much criticism for doing a tough job? You try teaching your kids. Some of you do. Now take your hat off, my hat off to you. One little act of kindness speaks volumes. I was talking just recently with a pastor. His church had turned against him. church was trying to do everything possible to get rid of this pastor. I mean, made his life miserable. He said, except for one man, 
He said this one man stood up one time in a board meeting. He says, you want to get rid of your pastor? He said, treat him with so much love and kindness that the word will spread throughout the community that this man is loved and he'll get a call to another church. Sounds ridiculous, but it's true. How many other churches would ever want a, a pastor that the church hates? They're not going to ask him to come. story is told about Peter Arnett, who was a CNN television commentator. You might remember him. One time, Mr. Arnett was in Israel in a small town on the West Bank when a bomb exploded like happened so often there and elsewhere. Bloodied people were everywhere. And there was a man that came up, running up to Mr. Arnett, holding this little girl in his arms. And the man pleaded with the television reporter to take her in his car to the hospital. And as a member, the reason is because Mr. Arnett was a member of the press, he could get through the security line that the police had that had cordoned off the entire area to do their investigation, but he could get through and he could get to the hospital faster. So, so Peter Arnett and this man and this injured little girl jumped into the car and rushed to the hospital. And the whole time the man was pleading with Mr. Arnett, please hurry, hurry, she's dying. We've got to go faster. And so he would go faster and heartbroken at the thought that this little girl might die in that car. And so they arrived to the hospital and they rushed her into the emergency room. And the doctors looked at her and they said she needs surgery. They took her into the surgery. And Mr. Arnett and this man who had, was holding her were sitting and waiting to hear. And this little girl died on the operating table because her injuries were too great. And when the doctor came out to give them the news, the man collapsed to the floor in tears. And Peter Arnett was lost for words. And so he put his arm around the man and he says, I don't know what to say. I can't even imagine what you must be going through because I have never lost a child and it must be really hard for you. And it was then that the man looked up at him and said, Oh, mister, that girl was not my daughter. I'm an Israeli settler and she was a Palestinian. She was my enemy. But there comes a time when, when each of us must realize that every child, regardless of that child's background, is a daughter or a son. There must come a time when we realize that we are family. Amen. And that's what Jesus is looking for in His people. A people who recognizes that we are family. Even those that repulse us, even those who look terrible, even those who don't live up to what we think that they should be living up to, they are still our family. And we must treat them with love and respect just as Jesus treats us who are sinners with love and respect. He promises us He will never leave us nor forsake us. We must be willing to do the same, to reach out and to touch someone and to be with them in their crisis. Amen. How many of us need prayer? To ask the Lord to change me 
from a goat to a sheep. I know I do. I know it comes naturally for me to be a sinner and to run away instead of being there. And so this morning I recognize that I need prayer. And I tell you what, we're going to sing the hymn in the heart of Jesus because that's where we want to be. But that means if I'm going to be in the heart of Jesus, I need to have my heart changed from a stony heart to a heart like His. And we want others to see Jesus in us. We want them to see this heart of Jesus. We want others to see that we're willing to serve others. And that doesn't mean just with money, but that means that we need to be able to recognize their hurting power, that they're part of our family just as much as anyone else. And I want to help them just as Jesus would help them. And if you feel like you need a change of heart, when we sing hymn number 577, if you need a change of heart from being an old goat and you want to become a lamb of God and you want me to pray for you as I also will need to pray for myself, then I ask you to step up front with me so that we can pray together. Hymn number 577. together.
heads, please, oh Father. Forgive us for being goats. It's natural. It's our sinful way. It's the way of the devil. He wants us to stay this way because he knows that if we stay this way, we won't enter in the kingdom. We want to be no longer fake Christians. We want to be real Christians. Touch our hearts, O Lord. Take our stony hearts and turn them into the heart of Jesus, into that heart of love. Let our actions be the actions you would want us to do, especially to those who do not deserve it to those that hurt us the most, to those who makes our stomachs turn when we see them. Let us not be human, but divine as you reach and work through us to touch their lives. May the stranger see Jesus in us. May our family see Jesus in us. May Jesus see Jesus in us is our prayer in his name. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you walk in his footsteps and do his will today and every day is our prayer. Amen.